morning, friends. It was fun to start out this morning watching some of those videos of highlights from the last year. Um, but I was surprised when we, when we began singing this morning, I got unexpectedly emotional um, because I found myself remembering the week that we closed, the second Sunday of March last year, the last time we were together singing and how we as a staff, um, you know, so much was unknown at that time about what we were facing and what was ahead. And we got together and, and began talking about just how many losses we might expect in this community and what that could look like. And, um, you know, I was thinking this morning that sometimes the hardest things to thank God for were the things that didn't happen um, because you, you didn't see what could have been, right? You don't see the alternative history. And we as a community, many of us individually have suffered so many significant losses this year, but there are also so many with us. Um, and I just feel such gratitude in this moment for that and for God has been good to us as a community um, in so many ways this year. So I'd like to invite us just in a, um, to pause for a moment of um, prayer and gratitude just um, for God's presence in those invisible ways this past year and for what is before us. God, you are such a modest, such a humble God um, who's willing to work even when you don't get the credit, even when we don't see and notice all you are up to to preserve life and hope in the midst of dark places. Lord, as, as we mark a transition moment together as a community today, we do that just aware of um, people we love who are not with us anymore. Thank you for their lives and for their faith, and we just pause in this moment to thank you for the gift um, of their presence among us and their presence that goes on in you. And Lord, we thank you also for the gift of those who are with us. Um, for the, the mercies that have covered us over the past 14 months and allowed us to be back together today to worship you, to enjoy each other's presence, and to keep celebrating the gift of life and breath that come through your hands. Thank you for the ways your fingers are dug deep in the soil of our world and of history. Thank you for your mercies that are new every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the things that's kind of fun for me is sometimes when we're between sermon series, I have an extra week. Um, and what I like to do for preaching on when we're between series sometimes is to get to share with you a little about something that I'm learning in my own devotion times. Because that's usually what's kind of fresh, um, the ways that God's speaking for me. And um, it happened that uh, in the last couple weeks, I'd been spending some time in the books of First and Second Chronicles. Now, if you were like me, the books of First and Second Chronicles are not places you turn to often for your like casual reading. Um, if you haven't read these books in a while, uh, this is basically the, the court records for the kings of this ancient kingdom called Judah. And I have to admit, it has been a long time since I've read these books. Like, it's not obvious what I have in common with people who live in a palace with five wives and no plumbing. Um, so this isn't like my, my go-to devotional. 
Um, but, but the way that the books of First and Second Chronicles work is basically, in, in each story, you get the story of a king, you learn how old they were when they started to reign, a few of the highlights of their reign, like when they went to war or reforms they might have carried out, and then at the end of the story, you get kind of a brief Cliff Notes evaluation of their life and how they stood with God. Like, on the whole, how did God view them? How did it come out? And it was interesting because a few weeks ago, for, for a reason that I'll go into in another sermon series, I, I, was, I decided to, in order to kind of set the stage for some other things I was thinking about, I should just sit down and in one sitting read through First and Second Chronicles and give myself the big picture again of what was going on in the kingdom. And what often happens when you read a larger section of the Bible than, than we usually read in our little snippet devotionals is you begin to pick up a, a pattern, a kind of arc that goes through a book. And what really jumped out at me was a kind of pattern in this story of what may, who was pleasing to God and why in the stories of the kings of Judah. Like, why did people's lives kind of shake out the way they did? And I want to share with you what I noticed because it, it's kind of stuck with me. It's been speaking to me a lot in the last few weeks. Um, since we don't have time for all the kings of Judah, um, I want to spend a few minutes this morning with the story of Jehoshaphat, who was kind of remembered as one of the greatest, one of the best evaluated kings of Judah's history. Um, so let's talk a little about Jehoshaphat. If you want to follow along with me, I'm going to be starting in 2 Chronicles 18 this morning, um, beginning in verse 1. Here's how Jehoshaphat's story goes. Even though Jehoshaphat already had great honor and wealth, he allied himself with Ahab through marriage. A few years later, while Jehoshaphat was visiting Ahab in Samaria, Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for Jehoshaphat and for those who were with him in order to persuade him to attack Ramoth-Gilead. Will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? Israel's king Ahab asked Judah's king Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat replied, I and my people will be united with you and your people in battle. Uh, but, Jehoshaphat said to Israel's king, first, let's see what the Lord has to say. All right, here, here's what you need to know. Uh, Israel and Judah are basically what you might call sibling kingdoms. And like a lot of siblings, sometimes they want to kill each other, but when there's an enemy, they kind of have each other's back. Right. So, so King Ahab of Israel, he, he decides he wants to pick a fight with another kid in the neighborhood, and he wants Jehoshaphat to back him up. Um, so, so his basic strategy is he's going to get Jehoshaphat over, and he's going to make him a lot of meat, because you want to put you know, men in an agreeable mood, you feed them lots of rack of oxen. So, so he stuffs Jehoshaphat full of meat, and then he's like, hey, are you going to go to battle with me? And Jehoshaphat is like, yeah, I'm in. And then only after making that dramatic commitment does he think, you know, maybe we should have asked God what God thought about this. I love that detail because that's so true to life to me on how it works. Like, how often have you made a big decision and you're like, I'm in, and then later you're like, did I pray about that? You know, Jehoshaphat's a bit late on the spiritual draw, but he gets there. And this is what happened. And so Israel's king Ahab gathered 400 prophets and asked them, should we go to war with Ramoth Gilead or not? Attack! The prophets answered, God will hand it over to the king. But Jehoshaphat said, isn't there any other prophet of the Lord around whom we could ask? I find this super funny because what King Ahaz has done, he's gathered 400 prophets. It's like calling every pastor in Phoenix and taking a poll. Like, what do you think God is up to? And 100% of the people are in consensus. This is the right thing to do. And Jehoshaphat's like, but is there anybody else? 
And I, I kind of think he has a bit of an instinct here. You know, if you are ever seeking out the will of God and every person you ask tells you exactly what you want to hear, it's a really good moment to start getting a little suspicious, to start looking a little deeper. So it turns out Ahaz has called 400 people together, but there's one person he hasn't let in. Verse 7. There's one other man we could, who could ask the Lord for us, Israel's king told Jehoshaphat, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, only bad. His name is Micaiah, Amla's son. So the only guy who didn't get Paul is the well-known pooper of all the parties, right? Like, he's nothing but bad news. He's cut out of the inner circle. But Ahaz is like, all right, we'll call this guy in. Um, verse 14, when Micaiah arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, should we go to war with Ramoth Gilead or not? Attack and win, Micaiah said. The Lord will hand it over to the king. But the king said, how many times must I demand that you tell me the truth when you speak in the Lord's name? Do you get the feeling that these two guys have history? <laughs> he tell, Micaiah tells him exactly what, what he wants to hear. He's like, liar! I know you don't mean this. So Micaiah takes a second stab. Verse 16. Micaiah replied, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And then the Lord said, they have no master. Let them return safely to their own homes. Then Israel's king said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you? He never prophesies anything good about me, only bad. Um, in case you didn't kind of catch the reference there, um, the shepherd involved in Micaiah's statement is the king, and he's just said the king is going to die. Ahab is not delighted with this news, and so he basically orders that Micaiah, the prophet, he's, he's going to get locked up in prison and fed only bread and water until the king comes back alive. That's the plan. Um, but Micaiah gets one last word in as he's getting hauled off to prison. He kind of shouts and shakes his finger behind him. Verse 27, if you ever return safely, Micaiah replied, then the Lord wasn't speaking through me. And then he added, mark my words, every last one of you. Now, if you were Jehoshaphat, sitting next to King Ahaz, hearing this thing go down, what, what would you be thinking or do from here? Like, maybe some red flags, maybe some call, call for alert, but, but Jehoshaphat sits there, he listens to this whole thing go down, and then he's like, eh, and he marches right out to battle with King Ahaz anyway. Um, but what's, what's kind of funny is, like, Ahaz doesn't, he says he doesn't believe it, he doesn't believe Micaiah at all, but he, they're on the way to the battle, and he starts getting a little creeped out, you know, like, that didn't sound good, like, maybe I should hedge my bets a little, and so he comes up with this great plan, and he says to King Jehoshaphat, here's what we're going to do, I'm going to go to battle in disguise so that nobody knows I'm important, so nobody knows I'm a king, I'm just going to go dressed like the rest of my soldiers, you're going to go wearing your crown and your royal robes and basically dressing with a giant bullseye on your back. The scene cracks me up because it reminds me of um, in elementary school when the older brothers of a friend of mine told him to lick the frozen flagpole. You know, like, it's like an older brother goading someone on, and Jehoshaphat's like, sure, I'll wear this bullseye on my back and go in battle. So off they go, and naturally it does not go well. Um, verse 30. Aram's king had commanded his chariot officers, don't bother with anyone big or small. Fight only with Israel's king. When the chariot officers saw Jehoshaphat, they assumed he must be Israel's king, so they turned to attack him. 
But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the Lord helped him, and God lured them away from him. When the chariot officers realized he wasn't Israel's king, they stopped chasing him. Someone, however, randomly shot an arrow that struck Israel's king between the joints in his armor. Turn around and get me out of this battle, the king told his chariot driver. I've been hit. While the battle raged all day, Israel's king stood propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. But that evening he died just as the sun was going down. All right, so here's the sum outcome of the story. Jehoshaphat has made a whole series of really bad calls here. He made a decision to go to battle without praying about it or consulting God. When God was consulted, he decided not to listen to what God said about it. He allowed this, this friend of his to bully him into putting the bullseye on his back. And he only really decides to pray when he's completely desperate, he's about to die, and he just starts yelling, help, help God, help. But wouldn't you know it, God shows up and rescues him out of the blue anyway. So let's fast forward a little bit further into Jehoshaphat's kingship. Um, chapter 20. Um, a, a few years have passed after this, this scene in the battlefield with Ahaz, and out of the blue, Jehoshaphat gets word that his city, his country, they're about to be attacked by a giant opposing army. And Jehoshaphat is completely terrified. So here's what he does. Um, 20 verse 3. Frightened, Jehoshaphat decided to seek the Lord's help and proclaim a fast for all Judah. People from all of Judah's cities came to ask the Lord for help. Well, this time when a crisis strikes, it appears that Jehoshaphat remembers what ended up working for him the last time, and he decides to be a little more proactive about asking for God's help. And this time, interestingly, we, we get to hear exactly the words he uses when he begins to talk to God. Um, verse 5. Jehoshaphat stood up in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the Lord's temple in front of the new courtyard. He said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, you alone are God in heaven. You rule all the kingdoms of the nations. You are so powerful, no one can oppose you. You, our God, drove the inhabitants of this land out before your people Israel and gave this land to the descendants of your friend Abraham forever. They have lived in it and have built a sanctuary in honor of your name in it, saying, If calamity, sword, plague, or famine come on us, we will stand before this temple before you because your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. So look here, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and those from Mount Seir, the people you wouldn't let Israel invade when we came out of Egypt's land. So Israel avoided them and didn't destroy them. Here they are, returning the favor by coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us. Our God, won't you punish them? We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. We don't know what to do, so we are looking to you for help. Now, what's really striking to me about this, this prayer, this speech, is how kind of raw and honest it is. I mean, think about this. This is a king. This is a national leader. Can you imagine any national leader getting up in front of the people in the middle of a crisis and going, I have no idea what to do, and we are powerless to fix this. The whole community is standing there hearing him kind of profess this helplessness. Um, verse 13, all Judah was standing before the Lord, even their little ones, wives, and children. Everybody heard him make this statement of helplessness. Um, but after he does, this is what happens. Verse 14, 
Um, then the Lord's Spirit came on Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite from the line of Asaph, and he st- as he stood in the middle of the assembly. He said, pay attention all of Je- Judah, every inhabitant of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says to you. Don't be afraid or discouraged by this great army, because this battle isn't yours. It belongs to God. You don't need to fight this battle. Just take your places, stand ready, and watch how the Lord who is with you will deliver you, Judah and Jerusalem. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Go out tomorrow and face them. The Lord will be with you. So here's God's response. God doesn't come to Jehoshaphat and be like, you got this, man. I've got your back. You got this. God doesn't say, I'm going to make you brave and strong and smart so that you will have enough power to overcome them. God's response is actually, okay, you're weak, you're kind of scared, you're not that clever, but that's okay. This battle isn't yours. This battle is mine. So all I want you to do is just show up on the field, stand there, and watch me work. Trust me that I got this. Verse 20, early the next morning they went into the Tekoa wilderness, and when they were about to go out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah, and every inhabitant of Jerusalem. Trust the Lord your God, and you will stand firm. Trust his prophets and succeed. So Jehoshaphat turns to his people, and he he doesn't tell them his clever idea for fixing everything. He says to them, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go out and stand and trust that God is going to work. Verse 21, after consulting with the people, Jehoshaphat appointed musicians to play for the Lord, praising his majestic holiness. They were to march out before the warriors saying, give thanks to the Lord because his faithful love lasts forever. It's almost hard to register how strange this scene is. Like, uh, imagine this opposing army marching straight toward you, and instead of putting at, at your front line your, like, best soldiers to go and fight, it's Jeremy Kemp and the worship band lined up in front, and everybody's just singing and praising and raising their hands. Like, what are you doing, Jehoshaphat? Verse 22, as they broke into joyful song and praise, the Lord launched a surprise attack against the Ammonites and Moabites and those from Mount Seir who were invading Judah, so they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites turned on those from Mount Seir, completely destroying them, and once they'd finished off the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy each other. When Judah arrived at the point overlooking the wilderness, all they could see were corpses lying on the ground. There were no survivors. When Jehoshaphat and his army came to take the loot, they found a great amount of cattle, goods, clothing, and other valuables, much more than they could carry. In fact, so much it took three days to haul it away. On the fourth day, they assembled in Blessing Valley, where they blessed the Lord, and that is why it's called Blessing Valley to this day. So they're all praising, they're all worshiping, and as they're focused on God, praising and worshiping the faithful love of God, evil turns on itself, and evil self-implodes. And instead of actually fighting a battle themselves, all they have to do is basically show up to the battlefield and gather the blessings that are just lying there on the ground. Now, 
these two stories I just told you, these are the only two major stories we know from the life of Jehoshaphat, one of the greatest kings of Israel, who did what was right in the eyes of God. So what did he do right? Well, it's pretty clear he's not the cleverest guy around. Like, he got taken by King Ahaz pretty easily. He's not famed for his strength or his fighting prowess. Um, really, the only time we see Jehoshaphat in battle, he's run, running the other way screaming. He's not particularly courageous. I mean, he's terrified when he sees the army coming. He's not even really that religious. Like, he forgot to pray when he should have prayed. He didn't listen when he was supposed to listen. There's only one thing about Jehoshaphat that really stands out as profoundly right. Jehoshaphat knew who to call for help. He knew who to look to. He knew who to rely on. This is the major divide in First and Second Chronicles between those who please God and those who don't. The question is, who did you look to or what did you trust? Was it God or was it your own strength and prowess? That's the defining question of First and Second Chronicles. Now, one of the other interesting places you can pick up this theme is in, in the story of King David, one of the most famous kings of Israel. If you remember David, he's the guy who defeated the giant with this, as a kid with a slingshot and a few little rocks and great big faith. I mean, in First Chronicles, you hear a lot of David's story, and they're really, David's a great king, but there are two major incidents in his life where he really screws up. Um, the first incident, the one most people remember, is the time he um, committed adultery with someone and then had her husband murdered. It's not a very tricky story, because everybody, kind of human consensus through history is like, bad idea, David, No. But I wonder how many of you can actually remember, if you know the story of David, the other screw-up he made. I, I think most of us, it probably doesn't even come to mind, but the other time that David messed up was much more catastrophic for him, for the people of Israel. And what happened was that later in his kingship, um, David had at this point developed a, a very large consolidated kingdom. And, and he's sitting around in his palace and he decides he's going to take a census and he's going to literally count all of the fighting men in Israel. And all of his military commanders are like, David, don't do this. This is a terrible idea. Um, and he does it anyway. And total disaster results. So many people die. Like, things go really, really wrong because David ends up on the wrong side of God. And you might be reading this story as a modern person asking yourself, like, what's the big deal about counting the fighting men? Like, it's just a little addition, right? I mean, the trouble is that David started out as this scrappy kid who couldn't do anything without trusting God to make it possible. And now that David is a grown man, as an established king, now he's not looking to God. Now he's counting his resources and figuring out how is he going to make things work himself. That's the biggest mistake in the career of David as king. That change from trusting God to trusting himself. You know, it's funny because I was reading all these stories in First and Second Chronicles the other day, and I had one of those, like, oh, shoot moments you have sometimes when you're reading the Bible, where I I'm reflecting on David counting his fighting men and Jehoshaphat trusting God, and I suddenly realized that literally, like, 12 hours before reading the story, I had been going through the Trinity Church directory, counting the number of potential volunteers. 
I went through the Trinity directory like not once, not twice, but like three times and had my own little panic attack about like, how are we going to make this two-service thing work? And I don't know how this is going to work out. Did I pray about it? No. I consulted the directory. Now, I know I'm not alone in this. I mean, how many of you, like, you're in a tight financial spot, and you check your bank account to see what's in it, and then you go back and you check the balance over and over again, and you keep on counting the money in the account, like, figuring out how you're going to make it work? Or, like, things have gone totally wrong at work, or something terrible is happening to your family, and you say to your colleague or you say to your spouse, we got this, when you know perfectly well that you don't. I mean, I think there's an invitation here for us to have a moment of Jehoshaphat-like honesty with ourselves. I mean, there are problems facing planet Earth. There, there are problems facing our country. There are problems in this moment in the life of the church. There may be problems in your own family that we are not on top of. I mean, we don't have the power. We don't have the answers. I mean, the good news is that that isn't the end of the story, biblically speaking. That's the beginning of the story. Now, I, ha I have to be reminded of this again and again and again because I constantly am prone to get my own head wrong in this, that the life of faith is not about proving to God how many problems we can solve for ourselves. There's no, like, bonus points for being the person who can figure out all the right answers. That that's not what this journey is. In fact, Jesus and his disciples in John 6, they have this really interesting quick exchange where the disciples ask Jesus, verse 28, what must we do in order to accomplish what God requires? What must we do in order to accomplish what God desires or requires? And Jesus replied, this is what God requires, that you believe in, that you trust in him whom God sent. Not what must we do? Who do we trust? That's Jesus' answer. I, mean, I think this is one of the most consistent messages in the entire Bible, but it's really the one we struggle most to believe, even though it's at the heart of the story. That, that what God is looking for, that what pleases God, is not self-sufficient people who are high-performing and can figure it all out. I mean, what God is looking for are people who know where to look, know who to call. I mean, God is not offended by desperate battlefield cries, help, help, God, help. In fact, that is the highest compliment God can get because when we are at the end of our wits, at the end of our cleverness, at the end of our power, and all we've got left is that prayer, help, God goes, finally you get it. Finally you get who I am. Finally you get how I am the one who wants to show up for you. I mean, no matter what battle we're fighting as individuals or as communities, I mean, the battle goes not to the people who are the smartest or the strongest or the bravest. It goes to the people who practice that kind of radical trust, who know who to look to and who to call on to fight the battle. I want to invite us as we close into just a brief time of prayer. Many of us are standing on a lot of battlefields right now that have all different flavors and characters. Like may maybe there's addiction in your family. Maybe there's betrayal in your marriage. 
And we know looking out at the wider church right now, there's all these fracturing, all this division in the church. I mean, I feel keenly aware as Christians, we're really struggling to know how to talk about faith, and how to witness to faith in, in a time when faith seems so difficult to the culture around us. We're, we're in a, a nation that's struggling with these deep polarizations and divisions. We're in a world that's struggling with disease and huge climate threats. Like, we don't have the answers. Many of us are feeling keenly aware we don't have the strength and the power to pull it together ourselves. So what I want us to do is just, like, find that battlefield in your own mind, like, whatever you're standing on today, and we're just going to go in God's presence and make a little noise like Jehoshaphat. Do some crying help. I've actually been practicing praying like Jehoshaphat the last couple of weeks, and I just keep repeating these lines in my prayer. God, I am powerless, and I don't know what to do. God, I am powerless, and I don't know what to do, but I'm looking to you. I know where to look. I know that much. So let's, let's pray that prayer together. It doesn't have to be eloquent. It just has to be sincere. Um, and then we'll end together in a time of praise and worship, just like the people of Judah. And just honoring God for being so consistently who God is, who God has always been, and who will, God will continue to be for us. Let's pray. God, here we are in the middle of so many fields. We confess we've been racking our brains and squeezing our bank accounts and looking for answers for strength to solve it ourselves. But we thank you for this reminder from your story that the battle isn't ours. The story of history isn't ours. The story of planet Earth isn't ours. It's yours. So we call on you, God, and say, help. Help. We are powerless. We don't know what to do. But you do. Come and do what only you can. Come and claim this ground is yours. We are looking to you. We are trusting that you will continue to be who you have said that you are. A faithful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Quick to forgive and eager, always eager to save. Amen.